You are listening to the Deepening Your Practice podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at metagroup.org. That's www.mettagroup.org. So, uh, welcome. This is Deepening Your Practice. Deepening Your Practice in, is intended as an intermediate or advanced class, and what that really means is I'm not going to offer basic meditation instruction. I expect you already to know that. That being said, if you find that I'm talking about something and you don't know what I'm talking about, I am happy to answer any questions. I'm just not going to routinely cover the basics. Welcome. Hi. been going slowly through the Manual of Insight, and I hope to get to the end of it, but we're actually going to end this class at the end of the month, so next week is the last Deepening Your Practice class in the series. I'm going to switch to a Saturday afternoon class, Um, and I'm also not going to continue in the Deepening Your Practice format. Um, It's really a carryover from when I was teaching it against the stream. Uh, They wanted, or Noah had asked me to do an intermediate or advanced class for people, and um, I would rather uh, focus on teaching um, uh, through the attachment lens, and so I'm going to to, uh, shift to that focus. I do think that it's an enlightenment-oriented path and that it's a wonderful way to explore view. In fact, I think it's probably a better way to explore view than the poetry of traditional Buddhism. And so that's what I'm going to do. Tonight, uh, so there's just simply no way that in uh, two classes we're going to get through the the, the remaining two-thirds of the manual. (laughs) And we've had a request for me to talk about metajana instead, uh, <coughs> the seven factors of enlightenment, which is what the next topic is in the manual. So, what what say you? Is it uh, would you rather have me talk about the the practice of metajana, or uh, uh, touch on that briefly and go back into the seven factors? We have one solid vote for Meta over here. What do we got? Indifference. <laughs> Indifference. <laughs> Let's talk about Meta Jhana. Um, jhana is a, a, a Pali word which means a highly concentrated state. And so when we talk about Meta Jhana, Meta is a Pali word that means a loving kindness practice. We're talking about developing highly concentration states using metta, or the practice of metta as the object of meditation, instead of using um, another source. Typically in vipassana uh, jhana practice, the object of meditation is piti. Piti is a Pali word that means, well, it's most often translated as rapture. 
One of the things about these translations is that most of them were done in the 1850s in London, and so the meaning of rapture in 1850 in London is quite different than the meaning of rapture in, in the West or in the United States in, in our time frame. And so what it really means is an, an, an enveloping energy that overtakes the body. That's what was meant by rapture. The, there's a few differences in, uh, in jhana um, practice when it's oriented around metta, in that it's quite limited in terms of the stages of uh, jhana that you can enter into. If you look at the traditional framework for Vipassana jhana, there are eight stages of jhana, nine if you include, there's a state that you can, uh, a jhanic state that you can get into after you come out of cessation. Um, so in a typical Vipassana jhana, the first <coughs> jhana is entered into when five uh, conditions are present. Uh, vitaka means to which is the Pali word, which means to place your attention on an object. Uh, vikara means a Pali word that means that you sustain awareness of the object, unbroken awareness of the object. Uh, followed by piti, which is the rapture that arises. Followed by sukha, which uh, develops in response to the piti. Sukha is um, the opposite of dukkha. So sukha is often translated as bliss, but it's a pleasant... Um, um, I like to think of it as an emotional response, although some people might describe it differently. Um, a pleasant emotional experience that arises. Bliss in the English language in our time tends to mean something that has quite a bit of intensity to it. And uh, this, uh, in the traditional way of describing it, there's five stages of intensity. I mean, of intensity when it comes to the PT and then the um, uh, sukha response that also uh, can vary in intensity. Although, if you get, if you talk to people who are solidly into Vipassana uh, jhana, they're, they're, they're insistent usually that these experiences be very intense. And uh, one of the things that I've noticed about them is that they don't need to be so intense. Um, and then you have ekagata, which is a Pali word that means one-pointedness. So in order to enter jhana, these five conditions need to be present, but it's very unstable, so you're constantly popping in and out of it. That's why you need to sus uh, place and sustain your attention. When the jhanic state settles, where you no longer need to place and sustain your attention, you've reached the second jhana, so it's a settling in. And so you have in that uh, jhanic state the, the rapture and the bliss and the one-pointedness. But at a certain point, the, the energetics of the, the rapture will become too coarse, and the mind will again settle into this place of pure bliss and one-pointedness. In uh, Vipassana jhana, then uh, even the bliss becomes too uh, coarse of an experience and you drop into the fourth jhana, which is simply one-pointedness and equanimity. So it's a, it's a totally neutral uh, 
calm place. Because in metta practice you're always inclining the mind toward kindness, you don't have equanimity and your intention is not to gain equanimity. And so you cannot go beyond the third jhana in, in metta practice. That's the limit. Often what you'll notice if you're practicing and you get into the third jhana that you'll slip out of metta into the fourth jhana and then you would have to re-incline the mind toward kindness in order to uh, return to a metta, a metta state. The object of meditation in metta jhana is the mind state of loving-kindness. And so for a lot of practitioners who've never actually examined what the sensory experience of a mind state is, there's a kind of mystery about what that is. So when you look at the development of metta jhana as a practice, the first part of the practice is to develop a sensitivity to what a mind state is like. So what we're attempting to do is generate the mind state of loving-kindness so that we can locate the sensory experience of it. And often the sensory experience of the mind state becomes energetic or um, there's a PT response to it and so the thing that you may notice first in concentrating on it is... What is PT? PT is rapture or the energetic quality of it. In, um, in say, a uh, Vipassana jhana practice, uh, you would begin by focusing on the breath and you would concentrate the body-mind focusing on the breath and you would uh, pay attention to whether there, there was an arising of any PT event in the body anywhere. As soon as you notice there's a, a, an energetic quality in the body, it would shift your attention from the breath to the PT, and the PT itself would become the object of meditation. And this is similar in, in metta jhana practice. You're focusing on the mind state, but then you notice that the mind state eventually becomes quite energetic. And so you continue to focus on it. The mind state of loving-kindness is located inside the head. So the practice of metta jhana is very different in a uh, what we would call a dry metta practice rather than in a wet metta practice. So in a wet metta practice, we intentionally attempt to create a, a positive emotional state in the body. And so the activity of the mind is in generating positive emotional states. In, and that <coughs> We call that a wet practice because the practice is successful when we're filled with emotion. In a dry practice, there's no attempt to cause any emotional response at all. And so, um, whether there is one or not, or whatever the emotion is, doesn't matter. And we're not focused on it. We're simply focused on locating the mind state and uh, fostering its sustained um, presence. That making sense. So how do you take emotion out of loving kindness? It, um, so I'm familiar with the wet <laughs> and completely unfamiliar with the dry. Right. I mean, we're loving people and um, and why do you even want to be in that mind state if it's not um, 
heart-based or emotion-based? Well, there's a number of reasons for this. <clears throat> One is that if you have to generate a narrative in order to create the, the feeling state, then often you slip out of the practice of metta into the practice of sentimentality. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, metta is meant to be practiced in present moment awareness, and uh, it's so easy to slip into the content of the narrative that's generating the emotion which would take you out of present moment awareness into thinking that you would not actually be in the experience of metta, but in the mere enemy of metta, which is sentimentality. What we want to begin to be able to do is explore view, and view is affected by mind states. The main advantage of practicing in this way is that you spend time developing what the experience of a mind state is, and then you can explore how a mind state affects the way that you create the sense of self and the sense of world from the sensing experience, so that it's also very useful in terms of developing your uh, insight practice uh, toward enlightenment, because the, the uh, ability to, to understand how a mind state is experienced uh, when you apply it to kindness uh, means that you can recognize the distortion of the present moment through the lens of kindness, but then you can also recognize when any mind state is present and begin to detect the distorting features of, of a mind state. It isn't that um, necessarily that we don't want to have a distorting effect of a mind state or that, uh, that all mind states aren't distorting, they are. It's that some of them have a beneficial capacity to them and some of them are afflictive. If you can recognize the, the physical experience of the mind state of kindness, then you can also recognize uh, anger or afflictive sadness or afflictive fear. And then you can watch the process of how that affects the way that you make the world. And then you can begin to notice in this back and forth we were talking about this earlier. <laughs> this is the sensing experience. This is the thing that I made the sensing experience into. And in this constant moving back and forth between the two, reveal what mind state is present and how that mind state has a tendency to distort the experience of, this, of our sensing capacity. When you can recognize that that's how the world looks when, you're, when the mind state is one of anger, then when you see the world that way, you know that the mind state of anger is there distorting it. It makes the, the, the conceptual reality less believable and you can be more skilled in terms of how you respond to it so that when you create karma through your actions in response to the way that the world is, you know when, you're, when your uh, uh, tendency to create um, a response based on distortion is there. The Zen people have a saying, what water ask the fish? Which is an explanation of view. If you've always had view, and the view has always been distorted, how do you know whether there's a distortion there, since it's always the way that it's been? This is when I like to talk about attachment conditioning. 
the uh, fMRI studies are showing that the first attachment conditioning that affects the pattern of the brain responses is happening in infants between two and five months of age. Keeps getting younger. I know, it's amazing, right? So, if you've had your initial install of who you think you are and how you think the world is going to respond to you at two to five months, this is before conscious autobiographical memory is online, the view is already there, right? So that you look at yourself and you look at the world through this lens, this distortion, this filter that's always been there, how are you going to be able to begin to track that that's what's actually happening? So the reason that I like the dry uh, approach to metta practice is that it trains you to spot mind states and so you can see when they're there or not. If you can recognize that um, loving kindness as a mind state is present, that means other mind states are not there. And that if you can uh, learn to generate the mind state of loving kindness whenever you want to, then actually you begin to have volition over what mind state is present. And if you have uh, anger or fear or sadness or any of the afflictive uh, uh, mind states that tend to help regulate the experience of self and world, you finally have agency around changing them that you might not have had before. And particularly if you practice wet metta, you have the capacity to generate a feeling of loving-kindness that doesn't give you any agency in terms of uh, tracking mind states or changing mind states. It doesn't matter what the emotional response is if the mind state of kindness is there. You tend to incline toward automatic responses of kindness because that's how you've created the experience of self and world through that mind state. Mm-hmm. I was going to also add, I, I usually find that when you stay, when you can find it in your head first, the body kind of follows, like it, it, not intentionally, but it can sort of, there can be a secondary kind of warmth in the body that just kind of happens as um, a consequence. So that's the sukha. Yeah, the sukha. So the bliss, the intensity of the the positive experience of bliss that you can get from uh, metta jhana is, you know, way beyond what you could ever generate emotionally. I mean, some of them, some of the bliss experiences are just body-shakingly intense. Um, And you, well, I've never been able to generate anything even remotely like that emotionally. Um, I used to, particularly for people who have come to a first metta jhana retreat, you can tell that they haven't hit it yet because they're stomping around, bored out of their mind, repeating metaphrases day after day. (laughs) (laughs) Grumbling about how this is never going to work. And then you'll watch them and they'll go, blow up with these, this uh, intense experience of bliss and then you'll see them sort of float around. It's a very a pleasant uh, entertainment. <laughs>
It seems easier to find awareness when you're doing metajana first because you're holding on to that mind state and then suddenly you kind of have these glimpses of awareness being separate from consciousness. And I feel like that's easier to find through metajana than just straight vipassana. It's very um, concentrated. <clears throat> the object is very small and it's easy to get really concentrated on it. And also, um, it's emotionally regulating. One of the things that's interesting about, uh, particularly in retreat practice, is that it can be dysregulating to be on retreat. And so you, if you spend the first few days of the retreat just intensely regulating, then when it comes time to slip into Vipassana, which tends to be dysregulating, you have this, this baseline of regulation which is very stabilizing in terms of being able to move into that. So you come into the Vipassana practice in a highly concentrated and regulated state. And so uh, most of us who still use a lot of negative self-talk as the principal means of emotional regulation will find ourselves in the first couple days of the retreat engaged in intense negative self-talk to begin to regulate the conditions of the, the retreat. Part of that is on Vipassana retreats, typically there's noble silence, and so you don't have the easy emotional regulation that comes from being able to talk to people whenever you want to. Um, and then the mind generates intense self-generated emotion as the means of regulation, and if you use afflictive emotion as a way of regulating, then you're generating negative uh, mind states. What do you mean by regulating? Well, you'll have an emotional response to something. Um, one of the ways to define dukkha would be to say reactivity. The body-mind is just set up to react to stimulus from the environment. Um, Dan Siegel coined the term the window of tolerance. If an emotional response to the present moment falls within the window of tolerance, the body-mind can just tolerate it. It doesn't do anything about it. But if you have uh, an emotional response which is intense and exceeds your normal ability to regulate it, then you have an event that needs to be regulated and the body-mind moves in with a strategy to regulate it. You mean to get it in control? To bring it back into, the, into balance. Mm -hmm. This is where things always get really interesting for me because um, studying you was the first time it ever occurred to me that um, in order to like I can beat the shit out of myself as a um, as a strategy to regulate right which you would have learned from your caregivers oh yeah you 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 can imagine <laughs> how Christmas was this year how we do an understanding of that oh. seeing my mom yeah. Well, it's, it can be a useful illustration uh, to understand how you do it by watching them do it to themselves. Oh my God, yeah. <laughs> and then everyone else. And uh, it's also allowed me to be more accepting of it. When my, when my wife tells me, you know, how dramatic I am, I just laugh because she's right. Right. <laughs> Working on it. But just, just the idea that we're using... Um, unskillful, unproductive strategies to 
regulate something. What do you mean? To, how do you use negative stuff to regulate? Because... You mean to come to a sense of self? No. What do you mean by the use of regulate? I think you could explain it. I, I could. No. I could explain it, but you have to explain it. Yeah. <laughs> what, I, what I mean and is... And then I'll explain it. There, let, me you, let, me, let me tell me if I'm getting this right. There uh, are certain responses to either outside or inside stimuli, I guess, that that um, my, my, my body generally reacts in a manner that will, that somewhere along the way I voted on as being intolerable, just completely intolerable. And so I will regulate, in other words, um, I guess resist in a, in a way that, that overwhelming emotion. By its negativity? Yes. So if you look at it from a technical point of view, emotional response to the present moment is on the surface of the body. So face, front of the throat, front of the torso, it plays inside of the arms here and inside of the legs here. But emotion that you generate by thinking also plays in the same arena. So if you have a sense of uh, uh, an intense emotion in the body that you can't tolerate, you can think a thought that will generate emotion in the same arena that will displace awareness of the present moment experience with something else. That's fascinating. That's what I said. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, is, you have right? a fear response in the body and you respond to fear responses by generating anger. You begin, the mind begins to churn thoughts that generate intense anger. You no longer have the experience of fear. You have the experience of anger. And then when the conditions of the present moment change and the fear moves out of the body, the mind can shut the anger off and you come back into balance. But we are not often aware of what that core, essential, primal feeling is. Well, if you, you can find it easily enough if you look for it, but often we get caught up into the content of thinking and so we've completely lost awareness of the present moment, we've completely lost awareness of our reaction to the present moment. And in, and in response to losing awareness of the present moment, we don't take actions to resolve the actual conditions of the present moment, we often take actions to resolve the, the conditions of what we're thinking about. So we often find ourselves in, in unskillful action as a result of this attempt to regulate it based on the uh, conditioning. This is our... So you have the object that can be sensed, the capacity to sense it, and when they, there's contact, you have the consciousness of that sensing experience, which then the body uh, compares to the database of previously experienced events and if they can find a match in the pattern, then the conditioned response to those kinds of events are associated with the experience of the present moment. And then the process of volition, the process of what action to take in response to it, is formed uh, in response to that understanding of what's happening now. <laughs> if it can be very limiting in terms of how you respond, 
because you may not understand that there are other choices available to you because you get so caught up in the conditioned response to it. Right, and those conditioned responses are many times based on the regulation that we used in the past, right? So we're just so so, so we're just we're just repeating the same uh, uh, regulate regulated strategy strategies that don't help us. I can talk you through that process in something that happened to me in, in my last uh, uh, IPF or idealized parent figure session. I said, you know, it was a pretty good week. The only thing that was wrong was that I had a cold and that I, I've been actually withdrawing from most of my activities, so there wasn't a lot of stuff going on. And, and I, I was, I'm working with Dan Brown, and he said, all right, let's just um, let's work on the cold, since that's what's really happening. I said, fine. He said, so really come into the feeling of being sick in the moment. And I came into the feeling of being sick in the moment. And then he said, now, think back when you were a child, who did you go to when you were sick? Which is a question right out of the adult attachment interview. And I thought for a moment, and I said, well, I would go to my neighbor's house. Then he said, you would go to your neighbor's house? And I, yes, I said, yeah, I didn't think I would get taken care of at home, so if something went wrong, I would go to the neighbor's house. Um, and so he said, okay, think back to a time when you went to the neighbor's. And so I remembered a time that I stepped on a broken bottle and I cut the bottom of my foot and then I went over to the neighbor's house to see if they would <laughs> patch me up. And uh, <coughs> my <coughs> neighbor called my mother. <coughs> and actually my, my neighbor was mostly concerned that the big pool of blood that was forming on her brand new patio, <laughs> this is the 50s in uh, you know, Illinois, um, was going to stain it forever. So she was out there with a hose, washing wow. off the patio. My mother came and she said, why wouldn't you have come home? And I said, because um, I didn't think that you were there or that you would take care of me. And she was surprised by that. That was my mother. She said, but I'm a nurse. Why wouldn't I <laughs> take care of you, my child? Um, and I found that that was actually a pleasant experience. Somewhat. Mm -hmm. And they said, all right, well, think back further. Why would you not go home if you were sick or injured? And I thought all the way back to, and there I was, literally a three-year-old child standing in front of my mother, really hurt, and she was the one who hurt me. So right there, all the way back to that original decision of, I'm really hurt and I need somebody to take care of me, but I can't go to you because you're the one who hurt me. You can really come all the way into this conditioning. And then in the ideal parent figure protocol, then you imagine an ideal outcome so that in the database, there isn't the old thing of, I can't ask anybody I know who cares about me or loves me for care because you don't do that because they're the ones who hurt you. That's this line of, this thread of conditioning, I never would have imagined that in a week where nothing really had gone wrong and I just had a cold, that the, the exploration of that deep conditioning would have ended up where it ended up. But it was startling to be so clearly 
the three-year-old going, what do I do now? Who will help me now, right? And consciously, I assume that the reason why I don't ask people is because I don't want to bother me. Like, you, you, right. you, you were not aware of that. I was yeah. not at all. It was <sighs> startling. And then the repair of having your ideal parents right. come, come in and, and respond. It does, it just like... Right. You can just... Feel it. Yeah. So it's, it, this is the, 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 the ability to follow all of this. Now this is of course a guided meditation and it's taking you through all of these things and if you're able to recognize the mind states and recognize the nature of memory and how it links to all of that stuff, these things just come up. Hmm? Today, but when I got to the, why wouldn't I help somebody in this situation? And I went back to an experience in my childhood where, where I vowed I would not sacrifice my life as someone I knew who loved very much. I would not. And then my mind said, oh, you're just rationalizing. There's no excuse for your evilness. <laughs> there is no, you know. Right. You cannot be forgiven. You're just a low-level person. You're the lowest level. You're going to have to thousands of lifetimes to become a, a, a human being that you might accept. Right. So I don't know if it's true that there well, was that, 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 that vow in my youth insipid person. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's quite possible. What didn't happen is no one rescued you. So... Oh. No one rescued me. Yeah. So why am I going to be rescuing you? Right. Oh wow, boy, does that make sense? So then, um, if you have, if you uh, use in this protocol, the 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 rescue can still happen now, right? How? You imagine the rescue. I'm more worried about not having rescued the other person. Um, That's where the pain is. If somebody had rescued you, then in your database would be the activity of rescuing. In your samsaric process of forming perception of what's happening and then understanding volition, that would happen unconsciously and automatically because there's a different choice available. In the current body-mind, the choice is just the choice, and so that in that moment, you just went into the self-generated emotion process of regulating the experience of that. Could she use a different example? I mean, could she use a different, um, maybe she can't imagine the rescue of that traumatic situation as a child, but maybe she could find another incidents that she was rescued? Well, it turns out that it doesn't matter whether or not you're actually rescued or you simply imagine the rescue. So you can use anything, but you have to imagine it, and you have to imagine it with enough emotional intensity that it goes into the database. Memory is formed around intense emotion. 
And so one of the one of the reasons it's also useful to have somebody guiding you through the, the practice is because they can evaluate whether or not you're reinforcing the conditioning or you're changing the conditioning. Often, because view is so pernicious, we just see the situation. As you, as you described your response to that, um, the same sort of afflictive strategies of, of regulating came right online and, and ended up being reinforcing of the, of the present dynamic rather than providing an alternative to it. Does it matter whether it happens or not so you don't have to rely on another memory? Often when uh, you grow up in family systems like the ones that I grew up in, there aren't any alternatives to remember or imagine. Right? You, know, you have to completely invent them. Turns out that if you give the body-mind the permission to invent them, the body-mind can invent them. And they can invent them in an idealized way that's, that just suits the situation perfectly. And if you wow. can do it with e enough emotion, it becomes part of the database that you use to determine what action to take. And then what begins to happen is this automatic response that's much more skillful. And you haven't made any effort beyond the original work of creating the... An alternative reality. Right. Well... You're not trying to convince you're going through the experience with the teacher or, or whoever's guiding you. And it's enough in that moment when you're imagining it for your whole system to clear up. It's it's enough in one moment. This is not something that needs to be repeated, this oh, no, meditation. No, I, mean, I meant in that. There's a lot of conditioning. That's the thing, yeah. It can be so conditioned that just having that one experience in one session, it's not going to do it, right? Well, it's going to do it in that area, yeah. but there are many areas. Well, sure. <laughs> really? You can, like you can have... It happens really quick. Really? Yeah. Well, what... What ends up happening is that then when the inhibition to call somebody because you need help arises, it doesn't arise and you call for help. But that doesn't relieve all, all conditioned responses. In some sense, you move through all of them. With, the, with IPF, the reason that you, you want to work with what's actually happening is because you're watching where the, the old conditioning and the old triggered responses are happening and then you're reworking each of them until you get to a place where it's largely resolved. It's like you're updating each, you have so many systems operating, but each time you go in, you kind of update that one, that one system. How many systems is that you walking through? It, it, it eventually works you through pretty much everything that tends to come up. And what you're looking for is the automatic secure response to arise without you having to do it manually. That's how it works. Uh, and it, t it happens quickly. Uh, which is why it's an exciting thing. Um, Are you incorporating this in your own teaching? Or is this something I am, that... It's, in the Meaningful Life second level, we're, we're doing group IPF in every class, and then also the, the mentor is supporting you in 
practicing. One of the reasons why you want to do it with somebody uh, is because uh, you don't know, uh, you don't necessarily recognize whether you're reinforcing the conditioning or changing the conditioning. Mm -hmm. I could give an example. I, I asked one of my students to um, imagine uh, an ideal exchange with his dad, and so he imagined that he uh, was at a Boy Scout jamboree and, and he was showing his dad how to tie knots. Can you recognize the attachment problem with that? He's taking care of his father. Right. This, is a, this isn't an appropriate attachment response. His dad should have been showing him how to tie knots. So if you don't have somebody recognizing that, that you create a, a new installment that reinforces the old conditioning. Oh, my God. <laughs> but then you can correct, right? Drop that, reimagine that actually you're being shown how to tie knots by your dad, and then it's a quick shift. But if you don't have somebody monitoring the view, it's easy to, to just reinforce the, the, the present condition. <coughs> but back to the clarity around metajana, is that pretty clear, the stages of metajana? So what we do is we make the intention to radiate the loving kindness to somebody, and then we attempt to establish the mind state of loving-kindness, and then we make the object of meditation the mind state of loving-kindness, and then we attempt to come into a highly concentrated state on the mind state itself. In the beginning of the practice, it's just causing the arising of the mind state so that you can recognize that it's there. In the middle part of the practice, you want to be able to cause it whenever you want it, and sustain it. And then as the practice deepens, you want to explore the view of the world through the mind state of loving-kindness. What is it like when the mind state is there? And how, does, how does the experience of yourself and how does the experience of the world differ based on the mind state being there or not being there? Thanks. Is that making sense? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you started defining dukkha as reactivity recently, is there a counter translation for sukha that takes that? Or is it, do you still like bliss? I don't actually like bliss, but I don't know a different one. I'll, I'll actually, actually, Dan is the one who translates dukkha as reactivity. <coughs> I often used uh, unsatisfactoriness um, as the translation of dukkha rather than suffering. Um, suffering never really made sense to me because it seemed optional. Um, pain is pain, and if you don't want the pain, then you have pain plus the not wanting, which is suffering. It tends to multiply or amplify the intensity of it. Um, conceptually, to me, it seems that the human condition is unsatisfactory in the usual sense that we are born, we grow old, we get sick and we die, and there's nothing you can do about it, and just living in, in the human body with all its aches and pains and its uh, aging process. Um, and now, as old as I am now, I actually have friends who are dying of things like Age. 
<laughs> you know, first it was car accidents, then it was overdoses, then it was AIDS, then it was overdoses. <laughs> Normal lifespan. <laughs> you're you're referring to Dan Brown. What was Dan Segal's the window of reaction? Window of tolerance. Window of tolerance. Thank you. Which is quite um, ubiquitous now in, in trauma circles. Reactivity, even if you if you come into perfect equanimity, so there's no suffering around the, the nature of the condition of the human existence, we are still reactive. That's why I like the reactivity, because it's a reduction where the whole complex of the human body, of the, the human condition, is one of reacting to stimulus. We're just totally set up as to be constantly in react, reactivity uh, to stimulus. So even in perfect equanimity, we're still reacting. It's just that we're in equanimity with the reactivity. Um, so that I actually really liked. I feel like Suka, you could translate us. There, there is an something that's the opposite of reactivity, which effectively is just completely letting go entirely and just kind of letting whatever's there hold you up entirely. So it's a lack of uh, resistance in any capacity. And there's, like, there's a relief, I think. Yeah. Bliss kind of contentment a little bit? Yeah. Contentment is moving more towards the idea of equanimity or calmness, and bliss is not that. It's, it's an intense, it can be quite intense feeling, and it's it tends to be very pleasant, so it isn't calm. It doesn't. I mean, it could be shooting intense experiences of very pleasant uh, activity in the body. I want to go there. I know we're not supposed to stay there, <laughs> but I want to go there at least once. It just kind of oh. held up. I feel like that could be even. Yeah. The. Um, it is. Shinzen um, always calls it. The third jhana, the mo most pernicious trap in meditation, where you're just in one-pointed bliss. Mm -hmm. It prevents you from moving forward into the, the rest of the jhanic states. And if you can train yourself to get in there really quick and just be blissed out, you can stay there and just bliss out. But it doesn't develop any insight into the nature of, of the condi human condition, and so you don't advance toward Enlightenment. Does PT come back at all in the other jhanas? Not in the, um, not past the. Not past the, the fourth? Or the no, third? no. PT. There's no flow? Um, it's um, not in the sense of that coarseness of energy that PT is. Huh. What do you mean referring to when you say PT? Um, PT like can move your, it's like an energy that isn't conscious and it, it's, it's, uh, it's, ener it's energy that moves, that kind of can move your, the, the body. Is that um, Hollywood? Yeah, yeah, it is. It's typically described in five levels of intensity. The fifth jhana is um, sort of an expansive quality of mind. So if you would call expansiveness flow, then there would be that quality. 
The sixth jhana is typically characterized by the arising of a um, uh, kasina, which is a white light kasina. The seventh jhana is also a light a kasina of typically blue light, almost like a halo. And then the eighth jhana is pure awareness with no object. So it's just awareness with, with nothing. Cessation. No, cessation would be the cessation of awareness. So it's it's awareness absent of any object. So the eighth jhana tends to be very unstable, so you keep descending back down and then going up. Mostly, well, the seventh can be pretty stable, and then you move into this eighth. When I find things get really intense is when it's like you can have the peak or flow in your body, but when things outside start to flow with the things inside of your body, I feel that's where so things get very the dissolution experience. But it feels so it does feel super concentrated right. in you. It is. Hell it isn't when you're out. Alright. So I'm going to do some guided meditation to see if I can take you into uh, the basics of, of metta jhana practice. So remember in the beginning, it's just trying to figure out what the mind state feels like as an object sensorially, the sensory experience of it. And then once you're able to locate that sensing experience, you can use it as the object to focus on. So don't fret at all if you can't find it in the beginning. It's a, if you've never had to look for it before, you wouldn't be able, you probably won't be able to distinguish it. And so it's just hopefully a cheerful exploration of trying to find what the feeling of it is like. I'm looking specifically for loving kindness. For a sensation, a physical sensation inside the head which corresponds to the mind state of loving kindness. Ninth state. <laughs> no. Um, a corresponds to loving kindness. Right. To say okay. So, and we'll use an, an easy person as the as the person that we're intending the practice toward. An easy person is somebody that when you think of them, the mind state of loving-kindness comes with them. When we think of ourselves and we think of other people, part of that working model of, of them is the mind state through which we view them. So we're typically looking for a simple relationship where you just think of the person kindly. People who are really close to us, we tend to have complex relationships with, which means we have multiple mind states. Here we're looking for a simple relationship where we generally think of, of we generally think of them kindly. And so we want to use that person as the object of meditation so that we can begin to explore and locate the mind state of loving kindness. Does that make sense? Uh -huh. Question. Uh, could it be a relationship with an animal? Um, it could be in Western practice, but not in traditional Buddhist practice. 
it has to be a sentient being, and in, in traditional uh, Theravada practice, animals are not sentient. I know that this is an issue in the West, because we have a tendency to broadly distribute sentient, sentience. Oh, so is that why that you can meet animals in yeah. So if you were to ask a traditional Buddhist why you can eat animals, you can eat animals because it's not killing sentient beings because they're not sentient. Oh, that's so weird. It feels odd for a human to be able to think that they could determine that. Well, I think we can determine sentience in, in, in the sense that we think of about it in modern terms, and it's widely distributed through many, many, many species, and so it creates a conflict. But um, that question was asked of the Seador on, on retreat last year, and he said, you cannot. Mm. No hesitation. You cannot practice for a, uh, an animal. Are they vegetarian? Um, they're vegetarian except when wealthy donors are at the monastery. <laughs> <laughs> and then they serve meat. <laughs> Remember, veganism is a German idea, <laughs> so it's rigid. <laughs> I am. Um, I don't find all of these con contradictions um, that engaging, so it doesn't throw me throw me off just so much. It makes complete sense to me that that. Uh, that our Western view of things is very different than an Eastern view. Um, uh, whenever I, I, I'm always, uh, I find being provocative amusing, and retreats need some kind of <laughs> enlivenment, so I'm always asking provocative questions of the Seido. <laughs> and uh, I like him because he answers me with no selfing reactions. So he always, we'll, we'll have a discourse which will ultimately end with him saying, you have a sharp Western mind. That's why you can't understand this. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> He's talking about people flying on, on intense experiences of piti. And me and the German guy are going, Sado, can you demonstrate that for us right now? Just <laughs> 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 flies over his head. Oh, but I, mm -hmm. I, I really love all that That's stuff, so it's not, it doesn't inter interfere for me. Uh, I see, you find just, it's like just any civil discourse. And when I asked one of the nuns about some wild thing that they were talking about, she said, why wouldn't you believe that? And I, and I thought, because I have a sharp Western mind. <laughs> when you really get into how much you make shit up, just as a matter of course, and believe that that's how it is because you've made it up, um, you, you begin to understand that the, the way that you make the world is very unreliable. And so you don't want to really, you, you don't want to rely on the things you make up.
You want to constantly be checking whether it's real or not. Because if you make it up in a way that feels very compelling and you act on that and it turns out later not to have been real, you'll have created karma around that. Right? Have you ever misunderstood something? I don't know. I went away to the, the, this little Buddhist retreat and I, my Siva was doing the dishes in the kitchen and I was cleaning meat. I don't eat meat. And, um, and I was cleaning meat off Rinpoche's plate. Oh. It really upset me. It was almost a deal breaker. So I need to soften the edges of the, the preferences here or something. I don't, I don't know what to do. It's almost a deal breaker. Why is he eating meat? And he shoots guns. Oh. An animal? Well. I don't know why he's eating meat. Maybe a health reason. There isn't one. Really. <laughs> I just read last night that the Dalai Lama, well, the Dalai Lama's cat, but uh, that the Dalai Lama said, you know, if you have this little boy had, he was anemic and blah, blah, blah. And he said, but I can't eat animals. I don't want to eat animals. I love animals. And, and the Dalai Lama explained to him, sometimes, you know, even to grow vegetables, um, insecticides will be killing little animals and, and, and insects. And it's just part of being human sometimes. You're very much a vegetarian, huh? Well, I, um, I think that we're going to cause our own extinction for our love of cheap hamburgers, which doesn't seem like a yeah. good idea to me. Yeah. I mean, climate change is largely caused by uh, farming animals. Yeah. Um, Much worse than cars. So from the perspective of does it, is it worth the extinction? We're in the beginning of the sixth great extinction. Mm -hmm. This is how I kind of frame it. Grandpa, I read in a book today that there, there were elephants. Oh yes, there were elephants. Wonderful, wonderful creatures. Oh, I'd love to see one. Well, really sorry about that, but they're extinct. How could you let that happen? Well, you know, the double-double tasted <laughs> so good <laughs> that I just thought, who needs elephants? This hamburger tastes great. Yeah. Hey, Grandpa, I read in the book that there used to be giraffes. Oh, yes, there used to be giraffes. They were wonderful. Oh, I'd love to see a giraffe. Well, you know, I'm really sorry, but... They're extinct. How could you let that happen? Well, a little extra ketchup on that double-double was so delicious, I thought, fuck giraffe. <laughs> <laughs> fuck you for asking me about yeah, it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hey, Grandpa. I, uh, I read in a book that there used to be fish. Oh, yes, there used to be lots of fish. I'd love to see a fish. Well, you know, I'm really sorry about that, but they're extinct. How could you let that happen? You know, the tartar sauce on those fish fillet sandwiches was so good. Yeah. I fuck the fish. Well. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Grandpa, 
Sorry to tell you, but they're extinct. How could you let that happen? Well, you know, the triple dipping sauce, or those chicken McNuggets, was so good. This is essentially the argument for this, right? And I think to myself, really? It's, in, it's insane. I mean, you, when you read the research, and it's just it's frightening. So that's kind of where we're at. Um, it's kind of absurd that we're there, but we're there. All right. So we don't have much time to practice. Shall we do some anyway? Hey, Grandpa. <laughs> I don't love you anymore. <laughs> so as long as you don't have grandkids. How'd that go? <clears throat> it was um, it was difficult to hold, uh -huh. but it was easy uh, to um, create the transference from um, my dog. <laughs> but what was interesting is that it it is a it it, it worked in that. There was mostly a, um, a sensation in the head, like you talked about, mm -hmm. um, of uh, like just kindness and adoration for anyone that I brought to my attention. Mm -hmm. I thought, holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> you thought what? Holy shit. Yeah, I, so. It's the fourth of the Trinity. So there, there's probably nothing wrong other than um, clarity, clarity of what it is like. Um, there, uh, one of the things, for instance, that we do on retreat when we do this is we, we go, we spend an hour with pretty much every person we know as the object of meditation so that we can begin to evaluate who can we easily find kindness the mindset of kindness with, because it's often surprising who it is that you can find kindness with, and in that investigation begin to really develop a sensitivity to the mind state. Once you have a, a, a sensitivity to what the experience of the mind state is like, mm -hmm. 
it's easy to know whether it's there or not. But until you get past the what water ask the fish stage of the practice, it's what is it like? But once you identify what one mind, the experience of one mind state is like, then suddenly all of the mind states become apparent, which is really useful. Uh -huh. Is there even a location? I'm There's a location. a location. Yeah, totally. You know, towards the, like almost the very center. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Um, I, I don't, I don't know what just happened, but um, <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yeah. So I, um, I, at first it was I had to, I found myself smiling because the person, you know, just the whole thing, and then. Um, and then when you said something about uh, feeling to the mind state, um, literally I felt a sensation. And it, it started kind of third eye, and it kind of rolled around through my temples, and rolled, it kept rolling back like this. Yeah, good. Um, like that. Mm -hmm. And so then I just let it be like that. Right, good. But, but I want to do it again. <laughs> right. <laughs> Good. Yeah, I never done this. Mm. It's so cool just because you're like 30 minutes here, you're like, why would I ever do this? <laughs> <laughs> well, I've done, the, I've done the wet one, you know, and that's what, I, and that's what I'm that's what i familiar with. I didn't even know about this. Right. Um, yeah. Are you the only one who teaches this in the US? Well, I don't think so. Um, Indica has published a book on it, which you can get as a PDF on the web. Indica? Yeah. Indica Sayadaw is the, the teacher. He's in the Mahasi lineage. And this is a, a, a traditional Mahasi teaching. The Metta Vipassana retreat format that I've sort of expanded uh, <laughs> is also in the West, um, prior to this, this current era that we're in, was largely dominated by uh, Mahasi's teaching. Became such a part of our general culture, and it's such a light practice that the intensity of the Mahasi practice has become less popular, and so they've moved into uh, practices that are easier than the noting practice. So it's a kind of open awareness practice is, is what's currently dominating. But I, I think that um, if you have, a, uh, if you don't come from a pretty easy background, it's not going to be enough, really. That's what I think. What was the name of your book that Indica wrote? It's called Metta. Yeah. Indica. Ooh, Indica. I've taught it pretty extensively. In fact, before we started on this book, I spent uh, the year teaching it a couple of years ago. Um, so Metta Jhana is, is a, it's a, a traditional straight-up Theravada practice. The way that we teach, the way that I teach it is very similar to the way that that they teach it in Myanmar. I haven't done anything to it, really. Mm. The reason that 
I like it because it concentrates the mind. Um, a lot of the open awareness practices are useful if your, your mind is already concentrated. But if you don't already have a concentrated mind, it, you often don't have enough concentration to do the open awareness practices, and so you spend most of your time thinking. And meditative states are not, not typically thinking. So. Um, and then... Um, if you come from a secure background, going back to attachment terminology, you tend to be pretty good at mentalizing, because it was one of the things that you were trained to do when you were a child. And if you come from insecure attachment, you tend to not be so good at mentalizing, because it wasn't one of the things that you learned to do. And if you don't have the capacity for mentalizing, then the open awareness practices are harder to make progress with, I think. Um, so, um, for instance, with Uteshaniya, his primary practice is tracking whether the mind is craving, aversive, unconscious, or in equanimity. Um, but you would have to be able to identify a mind state in order to do that, and if you're not trained to mentalize in that way, uh, you don't you could end up in thinking about whether that's how it is rather than actually noticing whether that's how it is. That's the danger of it. So that if you, the reason that I like the metajana as a way in is because it, it teaches you to become highly concentrated and it teaches you to track mind states. Both of those are really useful. And then if you want to begin to uh, examine your attachment experience or any actual exploration around view, you can do it because you've been trained to do it. And at the same time, you've developed emotional regulation strategies that are basically beneficial. That's the other thing. The, um, most of us grow up and we have a collection of strategies to regulate our, ourselves, but a lot of them are afflictive. And you want to be able to identify which ones are afflictive and stop using them, but you can't not regulate. You have to emotionally regulate. And so uh, anybody who's attempted to stop an afflictive strategy that hasn't been able to, hasn't been able to because in stopping using it, there's a deficit of the ability to regulate, and so the mind just goes back to what it knows. So you have to develop alternative strategies for emotional regulation and get them to the point where they work well enough that you can begin to stop using the afflictive strategies. And then the this, this success rate is, is better. The, um, I was reading, do you know what rainbow body is? This is one of, I'm, I love new things and so I'm reading about Tibetan practice and the accumulation of Tibetan practice is called rainbow body. And rainbow body is where the body dissolves into rainbow light. And there, there's all of these um, wonderful photographs of different monks who have dissolved into rainbow light, and some of them are just hair and fingernails. <laughs> rainbow body. Some of them are a big head with a tiny little body, like almost an infant-sized body associated with them. 
the average time it takes to, to dissolve into rainbow body is between 12 and 36 years of not having a single negative thought. Mm. And I thought that was awesome. <laughs> the uh, imagining what it would take to train your mind so well that you never had to rely on a single negative thought to regulate your experience. I wonder if that would change access if they're if you're secure, secure base. I don't know. It's just I was, uh, you know, the the ambitious uh, Tibetan meditators all want to end incarnations in the rainbow body. So can the rainbow body run and dance and no. climb and? So a rainbow body is dead. You dissolve into light, and all that's left is what little physical. Energy, what little part of the physical body has not completely dissolved into light. Wait, and there are actual images of this? Many, many. Oh. And um, are they householders or renunciates? They're basically monks. Okay. Um, I, <laughs> I just thought that was awesome. Yeah. Rainbow body. I thought this was just like a disillusioned state, and it's like actually <laughs> right. okay. in delight. Okay. You know, in Tibet, they cremate you, and then um, depending on, on what state of enlightenment you are, there's these uh, relics that are left in the ashes that are supposedly completely unexplainable in terms of modern chemistry. These sort of glass-like structures that wow. form depending on how how f fully realized you are, and they evaluate actually how realized you are in, in this incarnation based on what, how many, and how big the artifacts are that are left. So it's more common to have those Right. Anyway, I just think it's... When we were in, in um, Myanmar, uh, we went to this temple uh, uh, to see um, a corpse that was unchanged by death for hundreds of years. And um, so we go, and there's this sort of mummy covered in gold leaf that looks like a desiccated mummy to me because of my sharp Western mind. <laughs> but to all of the uh, Mirama, it looks like a body that hasn't deteriorated at all. So I'm standing next to my guide who's explaining to me how miraculous it is to be looking at this corpse that was from, that's been there for 1800 years that hasn't deteriorated at all. And I'm seeing a gold-plated mummy, mm -hmm. right? You, you, you see how <coughs> I don't see that. But <coughs> people don't see it. Is there a scientific explanation for that? For what? For this body that's not decomposing. Um, yes, I think the scientific explanation would be that it's completely de decomposed and it's a mummy. Oh, okay. <laughs> I wasn't sure really like at what stage you were describing this. That it's been sitting there. And people have been coming for hundreds of years to see it.
one. Anyway, um, the, you know, the question is, Are we constantly comparing the way that we sense things to the thing that we've made it into? And do we understand how fallible the thing that we make it into really is, so that we don't count on that to be true, the truth, that it's this process of creating self and world constantly that is the, is the thing that we can rely on. All right, anybody else? Thank you Thank for coming. You. Um, I just wanted to give my usual Donna pitch, but the classes here are offered on a Donna basis. The suggested Donna is $20. Um, there's a bowl out there for cash, and I can also take cards. Donna is the practice of generosity uh, that you do for yourself. It's a kind of heart opener, the beginning of the path. If $20 is a good amount, give that. If uh, you're really well resourced and it doesn't seem like a generous amount, give it an amount that's generous. If it seems like it's too much based on your resources, give at a level that's appropriate to your resources. But each time you come, do uh, give something. And then we have some different uh, programs coming up. We have flyers for the intensives out there that we're going to start in, in March. And then uh, I also do one-on-one -on -one mentoring if you want to have a dialogue with me as a teacher. And then we also do morning meditation, uh, a live conference call. There's a flyer out there for that. Check it out. Thank you. Thank you so much.